I want to ask you to turn with me again to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 12. We're going to look at this passage as we are examining the final week of Jesus before he goes to the cross. And we're going to actually take a long part of this uh, chapter. I'll just read a portion of it to kind of give us an introduction. I'll invite you to stand with me as we open this together. Mark chapter 12. And let's pray this prayer, shall we? Lord, this is your word to me today. May it be a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Help me to hide this word in my heart that I might not sin against you. May I pray it in, read it through, live it out, and pass it on. Amen. Beginning with uh, verse 1 of Mark chapter 12. Here's God's word. Then Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will then the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the impartial imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. You can be seated. Thank you. The boss called in a rather stubborn employee who refused to participate in the company's pension insurance program. The pension insurance program required 100% participation. Well, the boss said, young man, I understand that you think our new policy is ill-advised and you have chosen not to participate. Well, that's your prerogative. But let me tell you that you are no longer employed by this company. You can pick up your paycheck on the way out. 
Well, the employee was stunned and he said, sir, you've made a mistake. Uh, I'll, I'll be glad to participate in the in program. At first, I didn't think it was a good idea, but nobody explained it to me as well as you just have. The power of conviction. Jesus is in Jerusalem. We talked about this last week. He knows that he is headed to the cross. He set his face toward Jerusalem. The pressure, however, he faced during the intensity of this week, we know that, that Jesus, in spite of all those pressures, remains committed to his mission. His mission was to reconcile the world to God by dying on the cross for our sins, and nothing would dissuade him from accomplishing that task. Now, as we continue to look at this final week of Jesus, Mark tells us that soon after Jesus enters the city, he cleanses the temple. We talked about how Jesus wasn't afraid to enter into the spotlight last Sunday as he had that triumphal entry, but he continues to up the ante here by going into the temple. And, and literally, he drives out the money changers and he says, he declares, my house shall be called a house of prayer. He, he causes quite a bit of a stir and controversy instead of avoiding it. The temple, he says, is to be a place of prayer for all people. But in Mark 12, Jesus still does not stand down. In fact, I would suggest to you that we see a series of four tests that, that are, are tests of whether or not he will fulfill his mission. And the first one is this. He faces the threat of physical abuse by the temple authorities. Not surprisingly, after Jesus uh, goes through the temple and, and cleanses it, the temple authorities are furious. They demand, who gave you the authority in Mark 11 to do this? By what right do you cleanse the temple? And Jesus answered, I use the same authority that was given to John the Baptist. Where did he get his authority, he asked them. Well, he puts them on the spot in that moment. The Bible says they refused to answer because they did not hold that John uh, the Baptist was from God, but the people around them thought he was from God. And so Jesus artfully silences them and he's temporarily off the hook. Jesus could have simply walked away, but instead Jesus presses in and he tells us this parable that antagonizes these leaders even more. You see, Jesus didn't go to the cross by accident. He went to the cross with a purpose he went there because he decided to go there. So he tells this parable against these, these temple leaders. And, and if you think about it, it seems to me the main point is to reveal how truly stupid these leaders are. He points it directly at them. It's about a vineyard and how the servants of the vineyard think that if they kill the son... The Father will give them the property. Now, when Jesus explains it that way, it just doesn't make sense. It's, it's absurd. It's dumb. You killed the Son. There's no way you're going to get the Father's property. 
And that reminds me, one of the takeaways of this parable is that sin ultimately is so very foolish. People who are in rebellion against God, utterly, it, it just doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. Sin, however, numbs us. Sin numbs our thinking and causes us to live in a fantasy, a delusion. Have you ever read the story of a criminal and when you read the account, you wonder, what in the world were they thinking? In Romans 1, 21, Paul speaks of the sinfulness of humanity and this is how he describes it. For although they knew God, they knew God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Listen, when we play around with sin, we, we lose something. Our thinking becomes futile. Today in our culture, we are increasingly demanded to, to live in delusions. I was listening to NPR yesterday on the way back from church and they were talking about pregnant people. That's become the, the word. A man can become a woman, a woman can become a man, a man can have babies. We're talking in today's society about human animals, you know, these, 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 these furries, the brokenness, and I, I, I want to be sensitive here, but the brokenness of sin has led to absurdity. And by the way, not to participate in the delusion is the cultural sin of our day. You get want to get in trouble, don't participate in the delusion. You stand up for truth, then you're the problem. But this parable exposes the leader's foolishness. People today, well, they say stupid things too. I've heard people say, well, you know, I'm probably going to hell, but at least my friends will be there. At least I'll have fun getting there. Or I think I can do these drugs and I'm not going to get addicted. Or, you know, maybe this affair won't be such a big deal. But it'll be worth it. And it's just dumb. It's ludicrous. It's absurd. And yet how many people walk those paths because their thinking is futile. So they killed the son, threw him out of the vineyard. And in verse 9, Jesus asked, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, this makes the temple authorities angrier than ever. They know what he's saying. He knows, however, they're plotting against him to do him bodily harm. They, he knows that, but instead of adjusting his message or backing off or softening it, he confronts them head on because he had come into the world for the purpose of confronting sin and dying on the cross for people's sins and nothing, not even physical abuse, would dissuade him from that mission. 
But this morning, I want you to notice this. By telling them this story, he was also giving them grace. He was telling them as clear as day, don't be stupid. You can change. You can wake up. You can turn around. You can repent of this absurdity. And so there is an invitation if they would only hear it, if they would only be willing to change. But their hearts were hard and their eyes were darkened. And they said, you know what? We've got to get rid of him. Now, most of us in this room will never face a physical threat, per se, because of our convictions as Christians. Now, of course, there are places in this world, aren't there, where indeed that does happen, and we need to pray for the persecuted church around the world. But I also wonder, what happens when we face physical affliction? Because a lot of us do, or a lot of us will. How, how am I going to react when... I face a prolonged illness or the threat of a serious operation. What happens to my faith when a heart attack or a stroke or a diagnosis comes along? Or am I going to abandon my faith and angrily blame God for not protecting me? Or will we stand firm in our hope in Christ? I, I visited James Bible this week down at the Cleveland Clinic. I don't know, been on our prayer list the last week or so. James uh, suddenly fell. He's a contractor. He had some intense pain in his back, and when they, when they did the exam, they realized he had a tumor pressing in on his, his spine, and then they looked some more and realized there were tumors throughout his body. 52 year younger than me five kids going to be tough and we sat there and we prayed together it's in those moments however you, you kind of get your priorities set straight and we've affirmed our faith in Jesus Christ but those are the moments when our convictions are tested what do we really believe Job suffered terribly physically, you remember, but he came to a point where he said, even though God slay me, yet will I trust him. But Jesus faced a second test here. Jesus then faces a test from the Pharisees and the Herodians. This was the threat of declining popularity. Verse 13 says, the Pharisees and the Herodians came to catch him in his words. And so the badgering continues, and they begin with flattery, trying to disarm Jesus. Teacher, they say, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others. You care about the truth. It is, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, of course, they really thought they had Jesus trapped here. If he said yes, what's going to happen? Well, you're going to make a whole lot of people mad. You're going to lose credibility with the masses because the Jews hated having to pay taxes to the Roman invaders. 
the occupiers of their land. They wanted nothing to do with that. They were, in fact, looking for a Messiah to come who would drive the invaders out and overthrow the Romans. But if he said, no, you don't have to pay your taxes, well, then they had him. He could be arrested for insurrection. But Jesus wasn't going to play their games. Verse 15 says, Jesus knew their hypocrisy. He even asked them, why are you trying to trap me? He calls them out. And he says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. I think that's interesting because these Pharisees apparently were using denarii and were using the Romans' money. They had some in their pocket, so it came out of their pocket. This is what they valued. This is what they were using. And Jesus says, well, whose image is on the coin? Whose inscription? Of course, it was Caesar. Jesus was saying to them, give to Caesar what's his. And then he says, give to God what belongs to God. Now, notice Jesus didn't say what people wanted him to say. They wanted him to say, don't pay taxes to Caesar. He's a bum. But Jesus wasn't afraid to be unpopular. But in doing so, he also said something else. He said, give to God what is God's. Do you notice again we have an invitation? Every human being you've ever met has been created in the image of God. Give Caesar his coins. But will you give God your life? I want you to know that following Jesus is not always popular. As a pastor, there are some times when I have to say things that you're not going to like. If I never step on your toes, if I never say something that, that's going to aggravate and make you uncomfortable, I'm probably not doing my job. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 says, We speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. I, I uh, came across a, a speech that uh, Tony Evans, Dr. Tony Evans from Dallas, uh, who's uh, been on the radio for years, but I have an immense amount of respect for him. But he was speaking at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention in 2021. And he was speaking to a largely conservative audience in that crowd. And, but I heard him call out the church as only he could do. And he was willing to do it boldly and succinctly. And I just want to, I want you to hear what he said. He said, I quote, the white church has become too Republican. Too many have wrapped our faith in the American flag. And when you go for a nationalism faith, you have contaminated the gospel. Not because you're a Republican, but because you have made the nation subject to the wrong kingdom. Instead of having the nation adjust to our king and his kingdom. And then he said this. But the black church has become idolatrous too. 
because what we have done is we have wrapped blackness in cultural identity. So we have often been more black than biblical. We have decided that our color can trump Christ, and so we will endorse a political party who endorses evil, say nothing about the evil of abortion, the evil of homosexual lifestyle, the evil of the misuse of government because of race. He said, God doesn't ride the back of a donkey or an elephant. He sits as the king of kings. He sits as the Lord of lords. Now, I'm going to tell you, that was unpopular to be called out like that. Give to Caesar what's his. But give to God what belongs to him. There was a third test. This goes beyond what we were reading, but you can read it in Mark 12. Then there was the threat of intellectual ridicule from the Sadducees. He had met the temple authorities, then came the Pharisees, now it's the Sadducees. The Sadducees, you see, didn't believe in resurrection. They had no belief in the afterlife. They were the liberal party of the day. They fancied themselves as intellectuals and didn't have to bother with the idea of the supernatural. They did believe in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, but they did not believe that the rest of the Old Testament was inspired. So they brought Jesus, they, they come to Jesus and they give him a hypothetical question which had tied those knots who did believe in the resurrection. And I'm just going to take a moment here and read that to you. It says, then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Now, I'm going to tell you right now, one of the things that I thought about when I was reading that is I certainly wouldn't want to have been that seventh brother. You mean I got to marry her? I'd be checking my orange juice every morning before I <laughs> give it to the cat, see if the cat does all right, and then, uh, then go from there. But Jesus has this question given him, what about the resurrection? Who's she going to be married to? Obviously. Jesus gives a brilliant answer. He says, are you not in error? Because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels of heaven. So what's Jesus saying there? Well, Jesus responds to the Sadducees. First of all, you don't know what you're talking about because in heaven there is no marriage. Now, I could develop this a lot, but I got some good news for some of you if you think about it. You're not going to be married in heaven. You take that vow till death us do part, and when you die, that's it. Kind of like the wife, if you think about it, who went to the police department with her neighbor to report her husband was missing. 
She said, yeah, he's, uh, the, the policeman said, uh, well, you've got to give me a description of your husband. Well, she said, yes, uh, I'll do that. He's six foot two, 195 pounds, athletic build. He's got dark eyes and wavy hair, handsome, smart, huge Ohio State fan. Her neighbor said, Mary, your husband is five foot six, bald, big mouth, plump as a marshmallow, nasty to the kids. You and I both know he's not easy to, on the eyes, and he's a Michigan fan. She said, yeah, but who wants him back? <laughs> Jesus goes on, and he zings these Sadducees by saying, you don't know your own scripture. And he quotes from Exodus, one of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. In verse 26, he says, have you not read... In the book of Moses, the one you believe in, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. You're badly mistaken, Jesus said. Jesus said, God didn't say I was the God of Abraham. He said, I am the God of Abraham. Abraham died many years before, but Abraham still is. Abraham still exists. He's alive because of his relationship with God. I think about young people in our society today, and of course, we've talked about the Asbury thing, and maybe Generation Z is experiencing a renewal here. I pray that that is so. We have uh, also must be aware that when we send off our kids to college, there is an intense pressure, pressure very often for young people to recant their faith. To have faith is often painted as small-minded and silly. And yet think about what we are producing today as people, young people included, move further and further away from an awareness of the presence of God, the power of God. Well, we have more anxiety and depression. We have more confusion of identity, especially when it comes to sexuality. We have violence in our streets and untold numbers addicted to, our narcot to narcotics and pornography. People who don't know God's love for them will seek it out in some other way. But listen, we have more knowledge than we've ever had right now. And we've never been in deeper trouble as a society than we are right now. We have accumulated knowledge stored away in our phones, accessible to us, yet we're using that knowledge to destroy one another. And if you can't see that intellect and science alone are not going to solve our problems, you're not thinking very deeply. Bob Richards once said to a group, he said, you know, people are often 18 inches from the kingdom of God. And what he meant by that is it's the distance from the head to your heart. We need to trust Christ and him crucified. There was one final test, and I 
I think maybe what we might call this is, is Jesus was tested by, doc, by the uh, lawyer for doctrinal accommodation. Doctrinal accommodation. In Mark, 20, in Mark 12, verse 28, the Bible describes a teacher of the law, a lawyer, has heard the debating that Jesus has been involved in, and he's, quite frankly, rather impressed by Jesus. And so he goes to Jesus and he asks him this question. He says, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, I want you to know that this guy is legitimate. It's a serious question. He isn't trying to trap Jesus. He is genuinely interested in Jesus' answer. Jesus says, love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the second one is this, love your neighbor as yourself and the Bible says that the man agreed this is right but I want you to notice there that Jesus was not finished with him verse 34 says Jesus replies you are not far from the kingdom of God you are not far from the kingdom of God now notice here, if you will, Jesus does not say, you like me. You're impressed with me. You agree with me. You're in the kingdom. You're good. He said, you're not far from the kingdom. Do you notice that Jesus is making it clear you can believe a lot of right things. You can do a, a lot of good things. You can live out a lot of right things. You can be a moral person, a good person. You can even like me. But that's not enough. This man had to take another step. This man had to take the step of trusting that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. This man, as good as he was, a good man indeed, would still have to lay down his pride and his ego and say, Lord, I'm going to trust in you and not in myself. I wonder how many people trust in themselves. One time, another good man came to Jesus. His name was Nicodemus. And the Lord said to him, Nicodemus, unless you were born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And I think about the fact as a pastor, listen, every time I think I come to this pulpit, I do come with a bit of fear and trembling because I look out at this group and I love you dearly. But I look out and I see people who are more intelligent than I am, often better educated than I am, wealthier, more creative, more influential, many of you more moral than I am. And it's really easy for me to say, you know, you're good. You got it. You're okay. Everything will be fine. And I wonder how sometimes 
are some of us just really close to the kingdom of God but the reality is in this moment you've been trusting in your own goodness your own righteousness to get to heaven you've never really repented of your sin you've never confessed him as your savior you, you, you've kind of just understood that oh, I'm an okay person I show up to church I, I want to do good things I want to care about people but is Jesus your savior have you made a commitment to put him first in your life as Lord you've never even taken the step of being baptized and it's an expression of that faith because you think well I'm, I'm good enough Are you close to the kingdom of God? Almost a Christian. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 reminds us, it is by grace. It's a gift that you have been saved through faith. It is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works so that nobody can boast. You see, you, you don't get into the kingdom by being good. You get into the kingdom by trusting in Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross. Good people don't get to heaven. Forgiven people who have faith in Christ, they get to heaven. Because being good, it turns out, is not good enough. In each of these encounters then, Jesus gives an invitation. He's being direct. He's answering these questions. But it turns out his mission is always to invite. This morning, I want to do the same thing and ask you truly, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Truly? Or are you just a person on the edge of the kingdom almost a Christian. Well, I invite you to take that next step. Maybe it's 18 inches <laughs> from your head to your heart where you know that you've put your whole heart and trusting in him and his goodness and his, his worthiness of being able to sustain you and save you. This is your day because your wealth can't do it. Your intellect can't do it your morality can't do it your status can't do it your church attendance can't do it Jesus had one mission and that was to save you has that mission been accomplished let's pray Father, I, I pray that uh, this message will not land on hard hearts, but soft ones. That you would open our eyes and our hearts to the reality of who you are. And that, Lord, we would each test our own selves and ask ourselves the question, have I received Christ as my Savior? Or am I relying on my own goodness my own abilities. Lord, we will always come up short. 
but Lord Jesus you invite us today you have one mission this morning at this place to come and become the Savior and Lord of everyone in this room I pray Lord that you would reach out to us and if we need to confess our sins if we need to repent and change our minds Lord I pray that we would have the wisdom to do so Father, I thank you that you love us so much that you continue to pursue us and you're pursuing us even this morning. Can we put you first? Can we trust you more? Can we love you more? My friend, if you need to, to make a confession of faith today, this is your day. You can pray a prayer with me simply like this. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came to this earth. I thank you that you lived a perfect life. I thank you that even though you didn't need to die, you died on the cross for my sin. Lord, would you come into my life? May I give you myself completely. May I follow you with my whole heart. May I trust you with everything that I am. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, make me more like you and help me, Lord, to accomplish your mission in this world of seeing others come to know you too. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. you need to come to this altar or you need some time with Jesus, this altar is always open. Uh, but let's sing and worship. Would you stand?